Today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through to 38. You can find this on page 833 in your church Bible. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was, as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Ezli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Sinium, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kozam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mattat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatar, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into God's word, so let's do that. Um, Father, we thank you for, um, yeah, this great morning to be able to celebrate, uh, to worship, um, to be able to um, build community with one another. We thank you for the things that we've already um, sung about and prayed about and celebrated we pray that you would be with us um, now as we jump into your word and explore what it is that you have to say to us uh, in this place this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's in a name? Uh, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Does anyone know where that line comes from and who says it? From Romeo and Juliet. 
William Shakespeare. Anyone know who says it? Juliet says it. Well done, Gemma. Excellent. Um, it's a great line, right? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. That line uh, is actually a massive turning point in the play. Uh, Juliet uh, states that she does not care that Romeo comes from a family that is en- enemies with hers. She loves Romeo despite his name. And Romeo then replies, Call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I will never be Romeo. Romeo basically says, I'll go back in time for you uh, and be baptized over again and, and given a new name. Not Romeo or Montague, but simply love, because that's what I am. It's great, right? It's good. It's, it's really good, right? Now, the reason why this scene in, in the play is so important is because you find, as you read through the story, that names actually matter quite a big deal in this story, um, especially as you keep reading that play. Romeo and Juliet cannot escape the significance of their names and, and the history attached to them. Their names actually speak something important and powerful about them. Um, both the names of where they come from and the new names that they want to give themselves ref- um, reflect where they're going. They're inescapable. Uh, and one can actually find out where the story is heading based on discovering what that name is. Well, in the second half of Luke chapter 3, one of the main questions, um, both the characters who are in the story and we as the readers are asked, is this question, what's in a name? Uh, Up to this point, we've been told stories about this Jesus, um, how angels proclaimed his birth, how even when he was a child, there was something remarkable about him. And last week, we looked at how um, John told the crowds that his whole job was to tell people about the one that was coming. Uh, Like the first act in a play, we've been privy to some opening hints to who this Jesus character is. But now, Jesus has finally appeared on the scene as an adult, about to start his mission. And the question Luke asks his readers, and the crowd is wrestling with in this scene, is, what's in a name? Who is this Jesus anyway? And that's what we're going to explore today. Um, In this section that Lisa elegantly read for us, Luke gives us three different names or titles of Jesus in these verses. Uh, The first name can be found in verses 15 to 18. Um, The second one can be found in verses 21 and 22. We'll come back to this in a second. And the third name uh, can be found in that long list of names uh, that happens in verses 23 to 38. So what's in the names given to Jesus? Let's find out. Have a look at verse 15, Luke chapter 3. It says, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Let's stop there for a minute. Um, We talked about this concept last week when we examined who John was and what his job was. Uh, We discovered, according to John himself, that his His job was to be a herald, a a town crier, a voice calling out in the wilderness that Yahweh, the Lord himself, uh, was on the move. The God of the universe, um, who designed us and loves us thoroughly, was sending someone to the world to set the world and our hearts right again. Um, 
that word, uh, of that special someone that was coming, is the Hebrew word Messiah. That's what that word means. Uh, in Greek, that word is Christ. So Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a, it's a title. Um, uh, of this person that was coming, that was being sent. Both those words, Messiah and Christ, mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. Uh, the one person who is chosen by God, who is set apart, who is promised all the way back in the beginning. Uh, we see this, if you read through the Old Testament, you see this um, when God speaks to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. That despite their turning away from God and reaping the consequences of that, God was going to send an offspring of Adam and Eve who would crush the enemy once and for all. We see this in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, where he says that through Abraham's descendants, all the world will be blessed. We see this promise given by God to David when God tells him that one of David's sons, 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 sons will rule on the throne and establish perfect justice. We see this in the writings of the prophets that despite Israel's rebellion and wickedness, God was going to send someone to set things right again. And this crowd gathered to visit John uh, in the wilderness and they wondered, are you that person? You're, you're saying and doing some pretty incredible things. Is that you? And what's John's response? Have a look at verses 16 and following. John says this, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So in other words, to answer the crowd's question, are you the one? John says, no. That's what that basically says. Um, I'm not that person. Uh, that person who is coming uh, will bring God's very spirit with them. Uh, he will have power and authority to separate those who are striving to love God and those who couldn't care less. Uh, and John says, if you think I'm great, you, you haven't seen anything yet. Um, I'm not the Messiah. Someone else is, and you're about to meet him. Which leads us to our second name. Uh, as soon as John finishes talking uh, about our first name, the, the, this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one who is coming, a very non-coincidental thing happens. Jesus shows up on the scene, like right on cue. Uh, it's like, just in case you were wondering who I was referring to, uh, he's, he's here right now. Here he comes. Jesus, everyone. Well done. Right? This is the guy. This It's him. Um, Jesus visits John in the wilderness, and the text tells us he, he gets baptized by John. Uh, and remember what Romeo said in response to Juliet's question, what's in a name? He said, uh, I'll get baptized anew and given a new name for you. A name you've never even heard of before. And what happens here in our text? Jesus gets baptized and something significant happens. Um, he prays, and in verse 22, um, it says this, The Holy Spirit descended on him, Jesus, in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus goes under the water, emerges out of the water, and God's own voice reveals another name, Son, 
It's hard to sort of imagine how monumental that would have been, um, to be there to hear that. Um, I still remember one cold July night in 2011. Uh, I was in Manly Hospital, and my wife was there. Uh, she had just given birth to our first child, Ellie. And after the midwives sort of picked her up and checked that all the right parts were in all the right places, um, and they wrapped her up, and they handed this tiny little person uh, to me. And as they did so, um, one of the midwives says, Congratulations, Daddy. That's it. It was simple, right? It was just one sentence. However, that, that moment is etched into my memory forever. It, it will always be there. Uh, there's something significant about that name. Someone giving me that name that I've never had before. Um, there are only three people on this whole planet who have the privilege of calling me daddy. You can try, but it just doesn't feel the same. Um, and I know that there are actually billions of daddies around the world, but only a very small amount of humans can say that I am their daddy. Um, I have that unique bond, that unique name with only them. And this moment uh, feels has a similar sort of feel to it as that as that did for me. The Bible tells us that if we believe and follow Jesus, we are included into God's family. We, we are his kids. But this moment is, is somehow different. It's special. No other time in history has God himself spoken to one particular person and called that person his son, the one he loves, with whom he is well pleased. Uh, Jewish people assumed that they were God's children, but it is highly unlikely that any Jewish person would walk around claiming that I'm, I'm God's son, his, his only son, the one whom he loves, the one whom uh, God is pleased with. Like, that just wouldn't happen. So this moment right here when Jesus is baptized and this, this voice from heaven calls out saying, you are my son, this is a once in a lifetime experience. Uh, as Jesus started his ministry, God wanted everyone to know both those people who are in the crowd and those who are picking up Luke's gospel and reading it, uh, to know exactly who this Jesus was, what his name is. He's not just some impressive human. He's not just an influential teacher or miracle worker. He's not someone who modeled how we can best love one another or someone that you should build your philosophy around. Um, he is God's one and only son. No one else on earth has that title. He is the one who has this unique, loving relationship with the Father. He's the one commissioned and send, sent by the Father as the Messiah to rescue the world. He's the one who perfectly fulfills all of God's righteous commands. As the gospel writer John tells us, Jesus is not like just like God or hanging out with God. But he is the only one who has ever seen God, who is in closest relationship with God, who makes God known, who is God in the flesh. This story of Jesus then takes an interesting turn. So Luke tells us first that Jesus is, he gives him a name, the Messiah, the Christ, um, this one who is sent. Then he tells us that Jesus is, is God's son, his one and only son, the one whom he loves, whom he's well pleased with. But then we get to this section of scripture that I'm sure all of us love the most when we read through our Bibles, a genealogy. 
Who loves, hands up if you love reading through genealogies when you get, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, right? You just flip the page, most of us. Um, now, a genealogy is simply a family tree. That's, that's all that, that means. Uh, it's a list of names of where you've come from, who you're related to. Uh, and so right after um, Luke tells us that Jesus is the Messiah um, and that he is God's son, Luke does something strange. Have a look at verse 23. It says, Jesus was the son, or so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mat-Hat, or however you say that name, Mat-Hat. What's a good, what's a good name, Mat-Hat? Um, Mat-Hat. Um, and so forth. He goes on and on and on, and I'm not going to go through that list of names because I wouldn't do as well as Lisa did. But um, if you've been part of a church or a community group or you've just read Luke chapter 1, um, you might think, why would Luke give us Jesus' family history if Jesus doesn't really have a family history at all because he's God's son? Have you ever thought that? Well, why is this in here? Jesus' family tree should go like this. Uh, Jesus, son, God the father. The end. Like, th- there's no there's no other branches. There's, there's nothing. It's one hand. There, that, that's it. There's two steps, right? Um, so, so if Luke, Luke himself tells us in Luke chapter one that it wasn't Joseph who was Jesus' father, but God made this baby grow in Mary's womb without any human intervention. So, if Jesus does have a family tree at, at all, shouldn't it be through through Mary? He's related to. He's the son of Mary, who's the daughter of blah 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 blah. Isn't that? That sort of makes more sense than rather than going through Joseph's line. Even here, he says, he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Like, he knows. He's not related to Joseph. He's not blood-related to Joseph. So why, why is this here? Well, genealogies were vitally important in the ancient world. <coughs> they still are to many today, uh, especially if your last name is Zaytunian, um, who uh, you can talk to them. They... Uh, they're really good at tra- tracing their family tree. It's excellent. Um, genealogies are have been really important uh, to people throughout history. And as I said before, genealogies often tell you where you've come from. But that's not the only way family trees work. Um, does anyone know the name, uh, historical name, Caesar Augustus? You heard that person before? Yeah, most of you. All right. Caesar Augustus's birth name was Gaius Octavius. Fun, that's a fun name. Uh, he was the great nephew of a man named Julius Caesar, who you may have also heard about, the guy who invented the Caesar salad. Um, that one's for free. Um, uh, who, who also happened to be the emperor of the Roman world. Maybe better well known for that. Um, when Julius Caesar was killed, he named Octavius as his son and rightful heir in his will. So even though Octavius was only related to Julius Caesar through really distant bloodlines, he wasn't his son. Julius Caesar had other sons. Um, He was given the name Caesar Augustus, so the most high in the line of Caesar, right? And so all of Julius Caesar's titles, his wealth, his history, his position, his status, legally all transferred over to Octavius. Um, He was... Even though he wasn't actually Julius Caesar's son, it was thought, legally, he was. He was given 
that role. Uh, no one thought any different. Um, and I could give you other examples like this, like how Princess Leia can be a princess if her mother was no longer a queen or whatever. We, it's a joke. We can go on and on. I, I digress. Um, but what, so what Luke is doing here is telling us plainly that even though Jesus was, sorry, Joseph wasn't Jesus' birth father, Jesus was still his son in a legal sense. And therefore, Joseph's history became Jesus' history. And I, I know this sounds really confusing. At least it did to me as I studied all these theories of all these people that talked about this. But people in the ancient world had no problem making that sort of connection. Uh, Luke, as he wrote, very well knew where Jesus came from. Yet there is something important about noting that Jesus had an actual family history. So then why? Why, why is this in here? Why is it important? Well, if you look through the list of ma- names that um, are, are on there that Lisa read for us, <clears throat> and she actually did a really good job of pausing um, on those names that you might recognize, you will probably make a few observations. First, you will probably observe that most of these names mean absolutely nothing to you at all. Right? That's, that's at least that's my first observation. Um, we don't know many of these people uh, in this list. Most of them are not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. So why are they Why are they here? Because it is important to show us that Jesus is linked to a bunch of nobodies. More on that in a second. Second observation you might make um, is that David is mentioned in Jesus' family history. Why is it important that David and Jesus are related? Well, because David was the king of Israel. Uh, he was the best king that Israel ever had. And throughout the Old Testament, God tells the people that one from the line of David will step up to rule on David's throne once again. A king like David, who is better than David, from David's own family. Uh, And so, Jesus is related to nobodies, but he's also related to somebodies, um, to people who are important, royalty. So that's, that's, that's important to point out. Third observation you might make is that Jesus is related to a bunch of screw-ups, like he is. David, who was this great king, uh, also was a murderer and an adulterer. Um, Abraham tried to make God's promise of having children happen without God's intervention. Jacob was a serial liar. Noah liked to get drunk and sleep in the nude. Um, And Adam, well, Adam was uh, the first in a long line of every single human to decide that he didn't need to listen to God at all. And so Jesus has this family history that links him to nobodies, to somebodies, and to a whole lot of broken people. Why is this a thing that we should pay attention to? Because not only is Jesus the Messiah, the promised anointed one coming to set the world and our hearts right again... Not only was he God's own son with the power and holiness that only God has, who can make God known, but Jesus is in every way, like us, thoroughly human. Jesus' favorite name for himself was Son of Man. Son of Man. He is totally human in every sense of the word. He struggled like us. He had moments of joy like us. He was tempted like us. He cried, he laughed, he needed time alone, he needed time to be in relationships with others. And most importantly, we see in his family that he came 
from nobodies, somebodies, and broken people just like you and me do. Jesus being given the name son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matt Hat, all the way back to the son of Adam, connects him with every single human. He is like us in every way. And Luke needs to trace Jesus all the way back to Adam to remind us that Jesus' humanity means that we have someone who has entered into our story. But unlike these nobodies and somebodies and broken people, unlike us, he was perfectly obedient to the Father. He never sinned. He never failed. In, in Jesus being called the Son of Man, we have someone who entered into my story, into your story, into every human story, and redeems them all. He is not someone who is far off, who we can't possibly know or relate to. He is one of us. He represents all of us. Now, that leads us to the end, uh, which is the part I really like to explore. What does this mean? What do we do with all of this? And uh, I have to say, I don't really have an application for us. Um, I usually like to have next steps for us to take, because that's helpful for me. But I don't really know what to do here, because Luke gets into that later in the gospel, what we should do, how we should respond. But I think it's important for us to pause here, to reflect Because all of these names of Jesus are given to the crowd and to the reader, us, in the very beginning of his story. And yet people still ask, yeah, but what's in a name, really? Luke wants you and I to know that a name means everything. Because by knowing someone's name, we know where their story is headed. If Jesus' names are the Messiah the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of Humans, what does that tell us where his story is heading? I would love to answer that for you. Um, And also the Gospel of Luke will help us answer that as we go along. But for now, I want to leave you with that question hanging over you and me. What is in the name of Jesus? And what does that tell us about where his story is heading? And how does that impact your name, and where your story is heading. As we ponder those questions, I think it's a perfect space um, to participate in communion. Communion is the time where um, we pause and we reflect, we think about who Jesus is, what he has done for us. As Jesus reminded his disciples, night before he was betrayed, and killed, he took a piece of bread and broke it, and he said, if you want to know who I am, it's who I am. It's my body, broken for you. And he gave his disciples a cup, and he instructed them to drink, to say, this is my blood poured out for you. And as you take this, remember. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done for you. It's this moment where we can take stock of who this Jesus is, what he means, what he's done, and what that does to us and in us. So I'm going to invite those who are helping me to serve communion to come on up here. And uh, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to take communion together. Um, yeah, to ponder these questions. As they make their way forward, I'll just uh, I'll pray for us. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus 
the Messiah, the one who's come to make our hearts and this world right again. Your son, your one and only son, the one whom you love, with whom you are well pleased. The only one who is God, who makes you known, who has the power and holiness, who fulfills all of your commands perfectly. And the son of man, the one who enters into every human story, who relates to all of us, someone who's not far off or distant, but like us in every way, and yet someone who is without sin and who redeems every one of our stories. We pray that as we pause and take these elements of thinking about Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for us, that you would help us to understand what's in the name of Jesus. What does that mean and where is his story heading and where do we find ourselves within that story as well? So God, we thank you. Uh, for Jesus. And we want to spend uh, these next few moments pondering what his name means and what that means for our story as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.